I'd like for you to open your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 7. We're going to study verses 3 through 9 as a means of introduction to what I believe is an extremely important topic for us. Listen carefully as we read the record from the Old Testament. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. And they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come into the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noises of horses and the noise of a great army so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact. Their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp. They went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And then they came back and entered another tent and they carried some from there also and went and hid it. Then they said to one another, We're not doing Right. This is a day of good news. And we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now therefore come and let us go and tell the king's household. What a powerful passage of scripture this is. Let me take just a few moments of background with this passage. If you go back into chapter 6, you realize that Syria had left Israel starving. The city of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, had been besieged by Ben-Hadad, who was the king of Syria. They had surrounded it all the way around, and a donkey's head was selling for 80 shekels of silver. The people were even eating the droppings of the dove. And it got so bad that after eating the donkey's head and eating the excrements of doves, they got so hungry they started eating their children. I know that you may think that you would not do anything such as that and that's so repulsive. But I want you to open your eyes and think what would happen to us 
after a long siege. Imagine the city of McMinnville being surrounded, every exit being blocked, whether it be a waterway or a road or somehow, and that we could not get any food. You say, well, we've got food put up in our freezer and we can eat that. Yes, you could. And then many of you may say, we've got canned food that we've saved back. And, you know, we even have some of those cans of food that was expired in our cupboards. You know what would happen after about a month? You'd be looking for anything to eat. Anything. And I want you to imagine how bad this famine is that people are willing to even eat their children. That's how bad it is. There were four lepers at the gate with few choices. If you're a leper, you're at the gate, you don't even have what the people inside have. And they're looking at their condition and they're saying, what are we going to do? What are the choices we have? Well, we can stay where we are and it's obvious we're going to die. They're going to die of starvation before they're going to die of their leprosy. Or they could say, we'll go into the city and we'll die of starvation. Just think with me a moment. Why would these people want to go into the city? What about you? If you know you're going to die of starvation, you know you're not going to die of your leprosy. You know that no one you're going to communicate it to is going to die of leprosy because the famine is so severe. So you want to see your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. But you know, if we go into the city, we're going to die there too. So they looked at a third alternative. Let's go to the Syrians and surrender. Well, what if they kill us? Well, we just die. But what if they preserve us alive? Then we've got food to eat. So that's the decision that they made. They're going to go to the Syrians. But you know, if you continue on, you notice that when they arrive, the camp is abandoned. In fact, there's no one there. If you read carefully, you will see that what they did, God had caused the Syrians to think they had heard approaching armies. And they know that if you are to the point where you can hear the army coming, you don't have time. So let's go gather up our silver. Let's go gather up our gold. That's only going to weigh you down. Well, let's go out and grab our animals. No, because if you're fleeing on a horse, you're even that much more visible. So they leave everything right where it was at. Food, precious possessions, clothing. And the lepers arrive and they go into the first tent and it says they ate, they drank, they had plenty of food. Now they had plenty of drink. Can you imagine those guys after being so starving of seeing all that food? They see the gold, they see the silver, they see the clothing. And it says they took it and hid it. They probably went somewhere outside the camp and found them a rock. And we're going to hide it under here so we can come back and get it. The text says they went into the second tent. And they got stuff and they hid it. But now they have an attack of conscience. Think with me for just a moment about that. Their conscience starts bothering them. Not that they have taken the food. Not that they have taken the silver. Not that they have taken the gold. And they have hid it because that's the spoils of war. Their conscience is attacking them because they have not told 
Everybody in the city of Samaria is starving. They're eating dove droppings. They're eating donkeys. They're eating their children. It would be wrong not to tell because everyone is so hungry. I'd like to apply that to our spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. We need to tell this good news. It's wrong for us not to tell the good news. I'd like to talk about for just a few minutes the procedure, the prospects, and then the prize. Let's begin with the procedure. You think of God's army. We are, once we become Christians, spiritual soldiers in God's army. And just like physical soldiers, there needs to be some discipline training in order that we may be able to do our job effectively. Let me read to you a passage of Scripture found in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 13. For everyone who partakes of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. For just a moment, think about the word unskilled. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to use God's Word. He's a babe. Not expected to. Being sincere but unskilled can sometimes do more harm than good. What if I decide I want to take it on myself to mess with something that is very dangerous without knowledge without ability. For instance, I want to go and work inside of an electrical panel. Oh, I don't need to be in there. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm unskilled. I haven't yet been trained. That doesn't mean that I can't do it at some point, but right now I don't know what I'm doing. For just a moment, let's think about how to teach. There's one passage of Scripture that just always comes to my mind when I think about trying to teach someone, Paul said in Colossians 4 and verse 6, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. When you read that word, those words, how you ought to answer, this means there's a right way and there's a wrong way of doing this. Someone comes and asks you what you believe. 1 Peter 3 verse 15 says, But sanctifying your hearts, Christ Jesus is Lord, being ready always to answer every man that asks the reason of hope that is within you, yet with meekness and fear. Someone ask me a question. Should I say, boom, let me tell you what you need to do? Most people are shocked when you come on that strong. No. Let your speech always be with grace. Not sometimes. Not most of the time. Always be with grace. And then he says, season with a little salt. Make it taste good. Make somebody want to 
listen to you. That you may know how you ought to answer each one. In Matthew 10 and verse 16, Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I'm going to send you out and people are going to be ravenous around you. They're going to be the kind that will seek to kill you. But he says, what I want you to do, be wise, be intelligent, be thoughtful about what you do and what you say. And he says, harmless as doves, don't do any harm. When it comes to the procedure of our trying to reach people, we need to make sure we take God's word and use it properly. You have to understand a person's needs and their background and tailor your approach to them. You've got to be able to reach a person where they're at. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Why do we have four gospel accounts? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Have you ever thought, why not just have one? Wouldn't one just be sufficient? If you read Matthew carefully, you realize he's writing to a Jewish audience. Most of the book of Matthew has as a basis quotations from the Old Testament because the Jewish mind had that Old Testament as the authority by which they proceeded. Mark's account was written for the Romans. There's a key word in the book of Mark. It's the word that is in the original King James translated straightway. The new King James translates it immediately. Because the Roman mind thought about action. And in fact, you'll notice a lot of the way the verbs are in the active voice. The book of Luke was written to the Gentiles. That's the reason why I think most of us, when we're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we tend to read Luke the most because we're Gentiles and it seems to express it in a way that we understand it better. And that's really the reason why you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you have the book of John that was written as a general gospel account to produce faith. John 20, verse 30 and 31 Truly many, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You go to the book of Acts. And you realize that the sermons in the book of Acts have different applications to different people in their background. For instance, Acts 2. There's a Jewish audience there. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Now when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Pentecost. One of those three annual feasts that every Jewish man, Jewish man had to attend. You have a Jewish audience. And what does Peter do? He goes to the Psalms and he talks about David. And he talks about David being in his tomb, but David being a prophet. He goes to Joel and points out from Joel chapter 2, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, Acts 2 verse 17. 
Or you go a little bit further to Acts 8, and you find the Samaritans. The Samaritans are not Jews. They're a half-breed of people who arose in the land (coughs) when the Babylonians brought in a foreign group of people to settle the area of Samaria. They were monotheists, that is, they believed in the God of the Bible. John 4 makes it clear that the woman at the well was one of those Samaritans. Or you go to Acts chapter 10 and you find proselytes like Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile. But we read in Acts 10 and verse 1, one who feared God with all of his house. To be a God-fearer was a Gentile who believed in God. So you notice how it sort of spans out Jews, then Samaritans, then God-fearers, proselytes, and then when you get to Acts 14, the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe, and when you notice you get to Acts 17 to Athens, you're dealing with Greeks, full Gentiles, who have no Old Testament background whatsoever. You have to start where a person is at. For just a moment, let me talk about some prospects, some people that we want to be able to reach with the good news. The worldly people, that is the people who are often very ignorant of what the Bible teaches, they are the most neglected, yet they are the greatest potential for growth. For instance, the Gallup poll just recently said that one half of the population is unchurched. That means they don't belong to any religious group whatsoever. They consider themselves to be outside of the religious mainstream. Of that one half, one half of them, which if you do your math is one quarter of the population, say that they believe in God, that one day they want to get their life right with Him. So one-fourth of all the people do not go to church anywhere, and yet they believe in God, and they want to get their life right with Him. Most often they are open up because they are easier to teach, because they readily accept the fact that they are lost. You know, when you start dealing with people, one of the hardest things is get them to see their spiritual condition. When you've got a man who's unchurched, he knows there's a God, and yet he knows he's not serving Him properly, he knows he's lost. He knows his condition. They need to be taught about Christ first and then convicted of their sin. We need to always put Christ first. He is our Savior He's the one who is the answer to man's needs. And then you have to point out, you need him. All of us do. And those who've never yet become a child of God really need him. What do you do? You start with the Bible. Why was it written? God loves man. God cares for man. And he sent a message to tell him that. That's what the Bible's all about. Then you talk about God and his nature. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Talk about Jesus Christ and the cross and where he began. A second group of prospects are those who are dedicated, sincerely deceived. They're dedicated. They believe what they believe 
strongly. They are sincere. That is, it's not a matter of somehow thinking that these people do not do this out of the right reason. They really believe they're doing what's right. But they're deceived. They're believing something that is wrong. And this is typical of a person in a denominational body. They often understand there is a gospel, but not how to obey it. Imagine if you're in the city of Samaria, and these four lepers arrive and say, there's food in the camp of the Syrians. Okay, how do I get there? How do I get that food? The problem is they're satisfied because they believe they're saved and therefore they're not seeking. They're not like the unchurched who are looking. These people are not looking because they believe everything's okay. And I want to at this point insert that one of the most dangerous places in your life to be is to be satisfied. To be satisfied. Am I satisfied with who I am and what I know and how strongly and devoutly I serve God. Brethren, we should never be satisfied. This requires careful patience. You have to teach rather than intimidate. You have to guide rather than drive and allow people to see it themselves. The worldly, unchurched people are easier to commit, but they're harder to stick. They'll often give it up quickly. While this type is harder to convict or to convince, but once you convict one, once you convince convince a person this is the truth, they'll hold on to it and they'll not turn it loose. Paul was this type of person. Did he believe that Jesus Christ was true, the Son of God? No, he didn't. Did he believe the church was the body of Christ promised by the Old Testament, that great kingdom. No, he did not. But once he was shown the truth, Paul accepted it, and you couldn't turn him away from it. How do you do some of this? Number one, you have a series of lessons on undenominational Christianity. You explain to people, we're not trying to seek to be a part of any man's church. We're wanting to be a part of that body that was established by Jesus Christ. We're not some here trying to put a name over the door that says, okay, we're a, another church among many churches. We're trying to be the church that is described in the Bible. And to do that, you have to show sometimes where the denominations come from. That's what we're trying to do on Wednesday night in our Bible class. Simply go through the various churches that are our neighbors, our friends, and say, where did they come from? What did they teach? Let's talk about the silence of the Scriptures. You know, just a few moments ago, we partook of the Lord's Supper. And it seems when it comes to the Lord's Supper, everybody respects that. We partake of the bread and then the fruit of the vine. I don't believe I've ever heard anybody advocate, let's add to that some steak, let's add to it some ice cream, let's add to it some soft drinks. No. You'd say 
That would be sacrilegious. When Jesus had taught the disciples about what this was, we'd say, we've got to respect that the bread represents his body and the blood is represented by the fruit of the vine. And if you add all these others, he didn't say to do it. No, he didn't say to do that. He didn't say add something else to it. He didn't say don't add something to it. We understand that with the Lord's Supper. We ought to understand it with regards to the organization of the church. We ought to understand that with regards to the way we worship God as well. You have to talk about the restoration plea. We're not trying to reform, to correct what people are doing today. We want to just go back and open up the Bible and say, what does it say that the church was? Okay, that's what I want to do. If I'm not doing that, show me. Let's go back and and let's find out what it says, the Bible, and let's do that. Let's do Bible things in Bible ways and call Bible things by Bible names. And talk about Bible baptism. Let's open up the Bible. Let's see who was baptized, adults or infants. Let's see how they were baptized. Were they immersed or they have water poured on them or did they have water sprinkled on them? What does the Bible say about that? Let's see why a person was baptized. What was the purpose behind it? When I open the Bible, I think I can answer all those questions with a book, chapter, and verse. There are several ways that you can do that. Years ago, Brother Larry made mention of the fact that he used the Jewel Miller videos. Brother Jewel Miller, for many years, produced a set of film strips. Then they became a series of videotapes. We've got two sets in the library. I brought one of them in here this morning. They're a good tool to try to be able to let someone see the Bible, just the Bible and the Bible alone. Another good method is called the open Bible study. There's three lessons and a little worksheet. And you can just open it up and there are yes and no questions. And what you do, you read a verse of Scripture. And then you just say, well, is this right? It's an open Bible. It's not trying to put anybody's slant or opinion on it. It's just simply a Bible study. Another means, and we've got dozens of these, is Searching for Truth, a DVD. And the purpose of this is just like the old Jewel Miller videos, is to simply try to let people see what I talked about in those previous points there. We talk about a third prospect, and that is the fallen church member. And folks, let's be honest, we have a serious problem there's likely a whole lot more wayward members of the Lord's church than there are active ones. If everybody who had been a member of this congregation that is not now attending another congregation faithfully were here today, we wouldn't have room to seat them all. Did y'all know that? Look around. Where are some of the people that you used to know? Many congregations are doing a poor job in caring for their members. And brethren, it's a responsibility that we all have. 
50% of the children quit the Lord's church after they leave home. 50% of the new converts eventually drop out. That's sad. When you start looking at the fastest growing churches today among us, it's not those with the greatest number of baptisms, though that is important. You've got to reach out and reach, but it's those retaining those that they have converted. The Lord is pleased when we leave the ninety and nine and go and seek. In Luke 15, verse 4, verse 7, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Verse 7, I say to you likewise, there is more joy in the heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. All of us should be concerned. Listen to the way he puts it. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. It's important to catch them early. It's easy for a person to become weak, and just slip away or drift away. Hebrews 2 verse 1 says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away, just like driftwood drifting down a stream. Or if you're reading the original King James, lest we let them slip like it's something slipping out of our hands. You've got to work to make sure that once these people start slipping away, drifting, go get them then. Don't let them get too far. Why? Because it's easy for them to become hardened in their new state. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another daily, as long as it is called today, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And it's easy for them to forget. 2 Peter 1.9 For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sin. Now very quickly, from the perspective of the prospect, we have helped save them. That's a prize. In James 5.19 and 20, he talks about those who have saved a soul from death and covered a multitude of sins. In 1, Peter 4, 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, he says, You will save both yourself and them that hear you. But from our own perspective, folks, now, those four leprous men who stood there at the gate or at the camp, we're not doing what's right. And they said, If we don't go tell, by daylight some punishment is going to overtake us. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 17 through 21, he talks about being a watchman for God. And God said, you've got to give them warning. And if you don't, I'm going to require their blood at your hand. Verses 17 through 21. In Acts 20, verses 26 and 27, Paul told the Ephesian elders, he said, I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I'm not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Proverbs 11 and verse 30 has been there all along and it still says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he who wins souls is wise. 
There's nothing more precious than the soul, both of the person we're interested in, the prospect, and that of our own. And there's no greater love that you can show to someone than to tell them about their soul. Sadly, those of us who have the good news are not telling it like we ought to. We've got a world out there that's lost. They're starving. And we know about the spiritual food. Let me encourage you, don't let this day pass without trying to reach out to somebody about their soul. If you'll open your songbooks now, we're going to sing this song of encouragement. If you need to become a Christian, don't wait to the end of the invitation song. Go ahead and make your step out as we begin this song. Because I know the longer a person waits, the easier it is to put it off, to think sometime later. We love you. The Lord definitely loves you. And we want to see you be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come and be baptized. You're a child of God. You've got sin in your life. You need to come home. You need to be restored. Come let us pray with you while together we stand and sing.